Edges, and welcome to episode 25 of Lost the Plot, the Tinted Edges monthly podcast all about books. I'm your host, Ang Harrod, and today we are back to our regular broadcasting with book news, mini book reviews, and a special guest. We'll be chatting to local Canberra author and fellow podcaster, Sean Costello, about short stories, including his podcast, Capital Yarns. There were some genuine hipsters in that photo. I'm not, I'm not a genuine <laughs> hipster. Not a genuine we managed hipster? to find some genuine hipsters. Oh, okay. yes. They weren't harmed in the making of that <laughs> photograph, I promise. If you want to follow along and find out more information about all the topics discussed in this episode, check out the show notes on the Lost the Plot webpage at www.tintededges.com slash lost dash the dash plot. Also, a brief content warning, there are a couple of news stories this month that talk about sex, so if that's not for you, feel free to skip through that segment. So there's one particular book update that I need to talk to you about this month. I had a pretty big milestone of a birthday earlier this year, and I got some fantastic book-related gifts. My mum gave me the book skirt that I talked about in the previous episode. I also got some book vouchers, a book-themed tea towel, and, of course, actual books. But I also bought myself a very special self-birthday present, a 10th anniversary edition of Patrick Rothfuss's book, The Name of the Wind. It is so, so beautiful. It's got these deep red tinted edges, it's full of illustrations, and it was one of the books that I had turned backwards on my shelf to show off those pretty pages. Until. So my partner was making kimchi, a hobby that usually I would thoroughly support, and he had put it up on top of one of my bookshelves to start the fermenting process so that it was safely out of the way Unfortunately, this particular batch of kimchi was fermenting a lot and the jar leaked directly onto my copy of The Name of the Wind. Anyway, we're still trying to figure out if it's salvageable, but I'm not quite sure I want my book to smell like garlic and chilli. Anyway, there's also been an exciting update from Felicity Banks, who spoke to us about interactive fiction back in episode 22. Felicity talked to us about her project Murder in the Mail, which reached its crowdfunding goal on Kickstarter, so congratulations to Felicity. She's already announced a new project called Magic in the Mail, which you can check out at her website. Just a couple of quick updates in the Books for the World segment. Our little street library has been getting quite a lot of attention lately. I was interviewed by the ABC and the lovely Shah behind the Canberra Little Street Libraries page about how our street library came to be and what our experience has been like since we installed it. You can check out the news stories in the show notes, and if you want to make your own street library, check out episode 9 of Lost the Plot, where we discuss how we put ours together. There was also some great news from our friends at Sokola Gunung Merapi, the little school at the foot of a volcano in Java, Indonesia, who ran a crowdfunding campaign and they managed to raise £3,151, which is a whopping well over 5500 Australian dollars. This is a fantastic result and it'll build on the work that they were able to achieve after my family's charity Books for the World ran a campaign to help them build a school and community library. After our unconventional episode last month, there is, of course, a lot of book news to catch up on. 
Finalists for the 2018 Hugo Awards have been announced, and the winners will be selected by Worldcon members in August. This year, there will also be a series of retrospective awards celebrating the best fantasy and science fiction from the year 1943, and the finalists have been selected for those awards as well. The winners of the 2017 Nebula Awards were announced. The winner of the best science fiction novel character was the final in the Broken Earth trilogy by N.K. Jemisin, The Stone Sky. The science fiction and fantasy writers of America, who administer the prize, have also awarded a Grand Master Award for Lifetime Achievement in Science Fiction and or Fantasy. Peter S. Beagle, known for his novel The Last Unicorn, has won the title. Other Grand Masters are C.J. Chera, Anne McCaffrey, Ursula K. Le Guin, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, and Joe Haldeman. The winner of the Stella Prize, Australia's Literary Award Celebrating Women Writers, was announced and the best book was Tracker, a collective biography written by Alexis Wright. I've been slowly working my way through the 2018 shortlist, so I will definitely have to give this one a go. The winners of the Australian Book Industry Awards have been announced, and the children's fantasy book Nevermore, The Trials of Morrigan Crow, scooped up three awards, which I am a little surprised about. But anyway, Academic Book Week, which took place in April, announced the 20 books by women that challenged the world. A list of 20 books was put together by British academics, booksellers, and publishers, and there was a public poll to choose the top 10. The number one book is Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Ido Lodge. The 2018 Vogel's Literary Award was announced, which is a $20,000 prize and publication by Alan and Unwin of an unpublished manuscript by an author under the age of 35. Emily O'Grady has won the award for her book, The Yellow House. Now, in the final book award news item, and maybe creeping into book controversies news, the shock decision was made not to award a Nobel Prize for Literature this year. The Swedish Academy, which is made up of 18 members who are appointed for life, have been racked with scandals of sexual abuse and financial crimes, even though the group is usually very secretive, seven members have left or dissociated themselves, and this will be the first time since 1943 the award hasn't been handed out. Now, speaking of things taking place in 1943, which there's been a few news items this month, there has been a discovery relating to Anne Frank's diary. The diary was kept by the Jewish girl while she was hiding with her family from Nazis in Amsterdam during World War II. Researchers using digital editing techniques have discovered four risque jokes and some candid explanations of sex and contraception on pages that Anne had covered over with brown paper. You can read them yourself in the article in the show notes, but I will read this one out because it's hilarious. So here's the joke. A man comes home at night and notices that another man shared the bed with his wife that evening. He searches the whole house, and finally also looks in the bedroom closet. There is a totally naked man, and when that one man asked what the other was doing there, the man in the closet answered, You can believe it or not, but I am waiting for the tram. <laughs> Anyways, there are some exciting book releases on their way. Australian journalist Lee Sales has a new book slated for publication on the 1st of October 2018 called Any Ordinary Day. 
The nonfiction book explores how people cope with the worst days of their lives. A new J.R.R. Tolkien story, edited by his son Christopher Tolkien, aged 93, is going to be released later this year. The story is called The Fall of Gondolin, and it is about a beautiful and mysterious city destroyed by dark forces. The book follows Beren and Luthien, which was also edited by Christopher Tolkien and released last year, and this book will be out in August. Okay, so just don't don't get too excited, all right, because George R. R. Martin has announced a new book, but it is not Winds of Winter, the sixth book in the Song of Ice and Fire, also known as Game of Thrones series. It's not, so I'm sorry. What it will be is a fictional history of the House of Targaryen. The book is called Fire and Blood and will be out on the 20th of November. Back home, Australian author Leanne Moriarty has a new novel coming out on the 18th of September called Nine Perfect Strangers. The story is about nine people who go on a 10-day meditation retreat. However, the lengths that the resort's director will go to so that they all get themselves on a better path ends up not being what any of them expect. How mysterious. There are some pretty exciting book adaptations that have been announced as well. There's going to be a 10-part Shakespeare retelling, which has been announced by the ABC, that will focus on telling stories written by Shakespeare from the perspective of the women. Filming is set to start at the end of 2018. It's going to be a female-led team, so watch this space, but it looks really exciting. 20th Century Fox has announced a really interesting project, which will be based on the Choose Your Own Adventure series from the 1980s. The way it will work is that audiences in the cinema will have an app which will let them control the outcome of the film. Now, The Guardian wrote a pretty scathing article about it, which I think is totally unfair. I love Choose Your Own Adventure stories, and I am so excited to see what comes of this. Now, a particularly bookish book adaptation is the new film out now called The Bookshop, which is based on a book called The Bookshop by Penelope Fitzgerald back in the 1970s. The story is about a widow who opens a bookshop in a small English coastal town. It looks like a book extravaganza. I think I've said book about seven times in this particular sentence train, and I cannot wait to see it. Okay, so finally, I'm also really excited to hear that there's going to be a new adaptation of the children's classic The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett, starring heartthrob Colin Firth. I know. Anyway, the story has been written for screen by Jack Thorne, who wrote Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, and um, without being too mean, who seems to be making a name adapting other people's stories for stage and screen. Now, we touched a little on book controversies with the Nobel Prize for Literature earlier, but that was by no means the only book controversy that has been going on over the last couple of months. One that was equal parts funny, savage, and sad was women taking to Twitter to describe themselves the way a male author would. The whole thing kicked off when a young adult author shared a passage from a male author's book that couldn't be further from an authentic female protagonist. It's so bad, I must read it for you. So here we go. I sauntered over, certain he noticed me. I'm hard to miss, I'd like to think. A little tall, but not too tall. A set of nice curves, if I do say so myself. Pants so impossibly tight that if I had a credit card in my back pocket, you could read the expiration date. 
The rest of my outfit wasn't that remarkable. Just a few old things I had laying around. You know how it is. Yeah, yikes. Can we say male gaze? Anyway, that started the challenge for women to describe themselves like a male author, and it was pandemonium. There are so many great contributions, and I'll leave it to you to check them out if you like. But I will say that if you're a female identifying person listening to this podcast and you would like to know how you would be described, website Electric Literature has you covered. They've got a little table where you can use letters for your name to find out how a male author would describe you. Mine turned out as, she had boobs like a bountiful fortress, and I trembled to ravish her. Wow. I should submit that to the Bad Sex and Fiction Awards. Now, it's not often that I get the opportunity to talk about fashion on this podcast, but my next story is a bit of a David and Goliath tale involving international fashion giant Zara. Australian counsellor and mother of two Kay Andrews fulfilled a dream of hers by publishing a children's self-help book called Zari, Little Wisdoms, to give strength to kids who were being bullied at school. However, she was shocked when she received a letter from Zara objecting to the title of her book saying Zari, spelled Z-A-R-Y, was too close to Zara, spelled Z-A-R-A, and customers are somehow so dumb that they would get confused between a children's book and an adult fashion label. Anyway, the odds are stacked against her, but Kay has decided to fight the good fight and hopefully we'll have some good updates about it soon. That wasn't the only recent children's book controversy either. There was some fantastic sensationalism doing the rounds that Victorian councils were auditing libraries, schools, and kindies with the aim of banning books that used the words girl and boy. There were suggestions that Thomas the Tank Engine, Winnie the Pooh, and Noddy could all be banned by the long-reaching power of local Victorian councils. Unbelievable? Yes, it is, because it wasn't even slightly true. What actually happened was two years ago, the Melbourne City Council commissioned ANU to do a study on the development of gender roles, stereotypes, and bias in preschool kids. The result of the study was that educators should avoid defining children according to gender and labeling activities based on gender. It's pretty well known that kids pick up on entrenched gender roles early in development, However, all of this research was somehow translated into the rumour that some kind of blanket ban on classic children's books was imminent. Fake news! Now, for some books that have actually been banned, the American Library Association has released its list of the top 10 most challenged books of 2017. Top of the list is 13 Reasons Why by Jay Asher, the book that inspired the TV series of the same name. It had been challenged and banned in multiple school districts because it discusses suicide. To Kill a Mockingbird made the list, of course, this year at number 7, because it always does. And if you're a stats nerd, you can check out the full list, and there are some really interesting infographics about who asks for books to be banned and why. Now, in an emerging segment, we have another book disaster, so if you're sensitive to stories about damaged books, please turn the volume down now. After record rains on Mount Wellington, Floods hit Hobart in Tasmania in May, and the University of Tasmania Law Library was hit hard. There were so many sad photos of books strewn across the lawn after they'd flowed out of the library building. There was a particularly striking photo of a student bent over a book, holding an umbrella against the rain. The library itself apparently was flooded by a foot of water and furniture and shelves covered in mud. 
Library staff are hard at work restoring and preserving their rare book collection, and after the floods in Canberra at the end of February, it hasn't been a good year so far for university library books. Now, librarians definitely work hard, and in some more uplifting news, here in Canberra, the achievements of two librarians are being recognised with two streets being named after them. The two new streets, Ina Knoll Street and Trask Street, named after librarians Ina Knoll and Margaret Trask, are going to be in the suburb of Coombs, and I think it's a fantastic way to honour their achievements and contributions as librarians in Australia. I would also like to recognise some contributions to literacy that aren't taking place in Australia. They aren't even taking place on this planet. Astronauts on the International Space Station have started a great little project called Storytime from Space, where they read children's books to kids from space. And you can see all the books they've read so far on their website. You can watch the videos of them reading the books. And they're also doing science experiments, and a lot of their books actually have quite a spacey theme, so they're definitely supporting STEM as well as literacy. Now, speaking of space... It's time for me to take my little space probe of a microphone out and chat to this month's special guest. Sorry for the noise towards the end of the interview, my arch nemesis from the National Library staged an invasion. So we're here at the National Library in the secret friends room and I'm with Sean Costello, local Canberra author, and he's going to talk to us about short stories. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Harry. So the short story is obviously a very particular kind of art form. What do you think makes a good short story? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I was thinking before we um, started about why short stories and which short stories had really inspired me over the years. And I started reading short stories, I reckon, when I was too young to read Edgar Allan Poe, but decided to try reading them anyway. And probably not oh, really, that's very ambitious. probably not really oh. understanding what I was reading. But um, <laughs> why is this so bleak? <laughs> exactly. I'm so depressed now. I'm ten and I don't like my life. Um, but I think um, those stories always had uh, a very you know, a, a clever a clever twist somewhere in their tale. Um, yeah. And I think probably that that something probably I strive for in my short stories is to is to take the reader on a bit of a journey but then hopefully surprise them at some way along the way um, with something they didn't quite see coming. Yeah, brilliant. And so Edgar Allan Poe's obviously been a bit of an influence, though I do think that your short stories are maybe a little bit more Not, not quite that bleak, yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. Um, have there been any other particular influences for you? Um, I've sort of read a lot of longer fiction I think uh, I read I remember when I was younger reading some of Stephen King's shorter stuff um, and probably made the mistake uh, of also reading some of the things he'd written about how you write um, oh, okay. and I've reflected on this lately when I actually I've done a bit more reading and probably reading I should have done long ago about how you actually write and reading yeah. some books about writing um, but it's funny so so one of the first books I read many years ago was King talking about writing and he said you know you just sit down and you get your typewriter and you just bash out whatever comes and it, it, it will happen and at the end of the, the end of the process you'll have a story and it'll have evolved organically yeah. and I recently <laughs> so I tried that and that never really quite worked for me and I felt better about it recently because I read a um, another book about writing and it starts off saying generally there are two types of writers there's everybody else and there's Stephen King yeah. and Stephen King sits down <laughs> and just writes whatever comes and that works for no one else in the world except Stephen King I don't know that it always works for Stephen King have you <laughs> no, ever no, read the Tommy not. Knockers? that's not <laughs> 
Sometimes it works for Stephen King. Um, doesn't work for me. So um, I've learned that while Stephen King's stuff is great to read, yeah. um, oh, that's not a, a structure or a, or a plan that works for me. So I do a lot more planning and, yeah, yeah. and organising before I actually sit down and write. Because my, my early foray into short stories was reading Wall Dahl's oh, yeah. stuff, yeah. which um, perhaps I was maybe read when I was a little too young. Because he can be quite dark. Really short stories dark. are dark. Yeah. yeah, he's very dark. And a lot of them are actually quite sexual in a way. Um, not necessarily in a good way He's been a bit of enigma, the old Roald Dahl, when you hear about yeah. how he wrote too. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people have kind of come out and been quite critical of him and said, oh, he was a terrible person. And you're like, oh, well, you know, sold a lot of books though. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Made a lot of kids happy for someone who perhaps wasn't the happiest human being himself as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But he definitely was like king of the dark twist. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and I think really sort of kind of, you know, taking the reader on this kind of journey and then it just goes completely... And you never know, as a reader, you, you don't realise that you've been taken on a very different journey yeah. than perhaps the one you realised you were on. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So also, how did you first get into writing short stories? Because reading them and then actually starting to do the writing, very two def- very different things. Yeah, I, um, I always was trying to write creatively uh, through my teens and 20s, but never really anything proper or of note or good um nothing that the rest of the world certainly wanted to see uh, and I didn't want to show the rest of the world um and then I sort of got to a point where I um wanted to commit to writing creatively more and I just had a couple of kids and they're both bad sleepers <laughs> and we'd started a system where they would give me three items and I'd try and write them uh, or tell them a, a shorter story you know a, a bedtime style shorter story uh, to help them get to sleep. I wonder how many of the great authors of the world got really started because they wanted to sleep their deprivation. kids to just go to sleep. <laughs> sleep deprivation. <laughs> I'll do anything, I'll write anything, yes. just please go to sleep. Go, go the F to sleep, for example, has <laughs> exactly. clearly been inspired by that. Yeah, so that's that's where it started most recently. Um, and so when I thought I should commit to writing creatively more regularly, then that was just a format that worked for the kids. And so obviously... I was telling them very short stories, yep. given they were quite young, um, and so it just sort of made sense to go from there. And the the way Capital um, Yarn started, particularly publishing stuff online, no one wants to sit in front of a computer monitor for hours at a time, so mm. that probably was also a factor. Mm-hmm. Um, I read recently, though, I think um, someone famous and smart said, short story writers have failed poets and novelists have failed short story writers. Um, yeah. I've never tried to write much poetry, so <laughs> maybe I am just a failed poet after all. Yeah, because who's, who's the... Um, oh, now I've completely forgotten his name. Uh, the guy who wrote Huckleberry Finn. Um, Mark Twain. But I mean, yeah. Mark Twain quote, actually. Well, yeah, because yeah, well, Mark Twain also famously apparently wrote a letter to somebody and was like, I'm sorry this letter is so long, I didn't That's have time right. to write a short, short one. Short one, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. perfect. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Because, yeah, you need it to be, like, really succinct and snappy, you know, because otherwise if it just sort of carries on more than you've got in the volume. And, and also you can, the advantage of the story medium, I think, is you can sort of take one idea and just write that idea and then and then it's done, obviously, in the longer form. Yeah, without to weave to, together. Yeah, like, get, you know, plot and plot, character and character stuff. Character development and, yeah, themes and, yeah. yeah. You can just tell a, tell a nice short story 
Because well, because I often think that you know a short story is a fun way to do a bit of a thought experiment as well. Like, what if the world was kind of like this way? Yeah. You can just sort of explore that within a very kind of small. You don't have to overthink it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And you don't have to go into all the backstory of how the world got there. It just is, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. You look at something like The Handmaid's Tale, which is a which is you know not a short story but quite a short novel, yeah. and that where the TV series has taken that world. Um, in places and, and exploring things that, that, as you say, weren't necessarily present in that yeah, nice, or like, short, I mean, sharp piece of fiction. 13 Reasons Why. Yeah. Also very short. They've now gone into season two. Pa- perhaps shouldn't have, but yes. Yeah, maybe shouldn't have. <laughs> Just feel like this school, this school is really not having a good time on yeah. it at all, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Though I have to say, you know, a lot of these kind of short stories are obviously unbelievably depressing, but I found that quite a few of yours are really quite uplifting, which is, you know, I'm, can, do you think you can have, uh, I guess, like a twist twist as well as something being quite uplifting? Yeah, I try to, I try to mix it up if I can because um, particularly all my stuff set in Canberra can get pretty samey and boring after a while. So, mm. um, and, and probably... And that's not a slur against Canberra, of course. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's more... In fact, I'm trying to send a very different message about Canberra if I can. Yeah, that's no, more that if I think if you set... Um, you know, I've written a few stories now. If you set them all in the same place, and it's going to get a little um, tedious unless yeah. there's something different happening there. Yeah. Thank you for saying that they're uplifting. Um, I suppose... That's also because I am trying to sort of paint Canberra in a different light if I can. There's a very sort of stereotypical view of Canberra, which is that grey, dull public service town. And so I'm trying to depict a different Canberra. So if if it's not that, that's that's something. Yeah. Well, because I really enjoyed, I was was reading your story, I can't remember what it was called, but it was the one about the... This sort of hapless guy who goes to the Fishwick market and meets this really pretty decoding girl. the opposite sex. Yeah, yes. that's right, that's yes. right. And so he's sort of um, this guy. He's like, you know, just your regular guy, probably a hipster, you know, buying blueberries at the markets. And um, he decides. Fair, fair chance he's a hipster. Oh, I would he's say. I would say like seventy-five percent yeah. chance yeah. hipster. Um, and he <laughs> and he tells this girl that he's a cryptographer, and um, I just thought that it was so funny because. I thought it was quite a clever story and he kind of made the main character seem really stupid but also but made the audience feel really smart at the same time and I really liked at the end how you put in the coded message and it was sort of a I quite like doing codes because I'm a massive nerd, but um, it wasn't like a particularly difficult. It code. was the world's simplest coded message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was sort of yeah. I, well, I won't tell you. I won't spoil it for you, so you can have the joy of figuring it out yourself on a cold winter's night. But um, it does take the, a while. Our hapless character does struggle though with the with the world's simplest coded message. Well, he doesn't. He can't, can't, can't even, figure it can't out. Can't bring himself <laughs> to <laughs> decode it. I was <laughs> amazed he didn't try and Google it or ask a friend for help. He obviously, but anyway. But I thought that that was really. Like, I probably quite, should say a few people have asked me what what does. Does the message at the end say? Oh, how <laughs> slack! You, just, you don't even put in the well, time. You don't five five to minutes, know. five minutes of effort, and you'll, you'll get there. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so I thought that was quite a funny one, where it was sort of—I don't know—it had a few different elements in it. Like it was—it was funny, but it was not exactly a happy ending. But it was kind of still uplifting anyway. I should—I should always, and I always try to give credit to the person who requested. It was my brother-in-law who requested that one, and um, so so the model of of 
short story writing I do for Capital Yarns is this, you give me three items and I'll write your story sitting in Canberra. Are and you still taking requests? I am still taking requests, oh, okay. absolutely, yes, yes. I'm busy on a few other things which you can talk about later, but I am still taking requests. Um, and so it's great, you know, people often say Canberra landmarks and that's fantastic, but the ones that often inspire the sort of get things flowing for me are the ones that give me the weirdest items. And so he, he asked for a pet turtle, a yep. punnet of blueberries and cryptography. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, already he sort of kicked me a fair way down the road of thinking about a, a quirky story because it's it's going to have to be a little bit interesting to somehow yeah. include those. Yeah, but it worked really well because I think probably the Fishwick markets are the only place you could possibly find a pet turtle and blueberries. Well, and, and know, our main... the setting. I, don't, I won't ruin anything for people who want to read the story, but, you know, our main character does think to himself, you know, there's a fair chance I was going to meet someone interesting at the fishing markets on a Saturday morning because <laughs> that's where all the cool people that's hang where out. That's all the cool people go. It's definitely where I go on a Sunday morning to go buy a kale for the rabbits, <laughs> which, is, which is a pretty Your rabbits eat kale. I was going to say, you eat, your rabbits eat kale, well, they're the hipster is, rabbits. Like, if we go to the shops, oh, sorry, we'll just, if we go to the shops and buy a kale and a bottle of wine, which happens pretty frequently, people think that the kale is for me. <laughs> the bottle of wine is for me, but the kale is actually you, you for need to write a, You need to write a diet book about how you can survive on kale and wine alone and, in fact, <laughs> how it's good for your complexion or I the best way to metabolism. I don't know that wine is good for your complexion. <laughs> the, it's the kale-wine combination. <laughs> the kale-wine diet. Yeah. The, the whale diet. The whale diet. The whale diet. There you go. <laughs> anyway, I wouldn't recommend you feed wine to your rabbit. I'll put that <laughs> But the kale works. But works. kale, yeah. Yeah, kale is good. We have guinea pigs, so forever googling what's safe. Guinea pigs are actually quite fussy eaters. Yeah, same with rabbits. So you always have to Google whether it's safe to give them a sweet potato. Yeah. I think it is, but not potato from memory. Yeah, well, you can't feed ra rabbits lettuce. So that's no good. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, it makes them. Um, it's not good for their stomach. Can they have carrot? Um, only in small amounts. Oh, there you it's go. Very sugary. So Bugs Bunny, he's got a lot to. But Bugs Bunny obviously had a very quick metabolism because he's very thin. My rabbits would not be that thin. He does a lot of running. He does do a lot of running. All right, all right. So Bugs Bunny aside. Yes. So your short stories, now you've collected them all together in a book that you published in 2015. Yep. I think that's right. And the book was called Capital Yarns. Yep. How'd you come up with the title? Because yarn, I mean, you, yarn obviously is an Australian slang term for a story. Are you into knitting? Uh, I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a massive knitter. I have. I have done a little bit yarn bombing in my time. That's about <laughs> my only. That's my only claim to anywhere near a, a piece of wool or some knitting. Yeah, and it was interesting when I went to to look around the web at um, you know social media accounts and stuff. There, there were some other. I think there was. I think capitalyarns.com, not .com.au, was registered to a, a wool manufacturer in southern United States. So oh, right. obviously okay. it does have different connotations in different places. It was just, I think it was just the, the sort of play on or the idea of, of the items being weaved into a story yep. set here. They've all been set in Canberra, bar one, and I am sort of toying with the idea of looking at setting stories in other capitals as well. That was the other advantage to the name. So there's been one story sort of set in Wellington, the capital yep. of New Zealand. And so there is that potential there to explore other capital cities in the future. But the, the yarn was really um, not just the slang term for story, but also the idea of weaving those three items yeah, yeah. Into, yep. into a story. Yeah, so, that, so um, I've done one compilation of the book and um, should say thank you again to the community because it was crowdfunded yep. um, and just about... Uh, completely sold out now and so 
going, going. So, so there's basically no copies left, or are there? A I've got. I think. Let me, we, we I've did. still seen a couple in some shops. So it's, it's a couple of bookstores around Canberra still have them, and thank you to to the National Library bookstore amongst them, given we're in the National Library now. Oh, okay. Harry Hartog paper chain uh, might also have some left, um, but looking at doing so, actually chatting to some of those suppliers now about what the if I did another one what it might look like what, what yeah, works for yeah. them from their point of view like maybe a second volume or yeah yeah whether yeah. that's that's um, the same sort of format so I was very lucky I'd done the um, participated in what was called the human brochure campaign in the ACT and so they basically mm. got a hundred people who were active on social media in the ACT and, and trained us up and put us out to the world to promote Canberra um, and I met a lot of fantastic... Like um, how far out into the world? So the, so the way the, the model they used, the first year they did it, they got ex- sort of the top social media performers outside of Canberra in Australia and brought them to Canberra for a weekend. Oh, right, And sort okay. of got Canberra trending. And so the second year they did it, they got locals and sort of trained us up. And then we brought um, family to Canberra and with the help of, of ACT Tourism, showed them around some of the amazing sites of Canberra and then everyone everyone was very active on social media on that weekend yeah it was really cool (laughs) idea um and i was lucky enough to meet some just amazing photographers as part of that so the book it's sort of a coffee table book with some really great photographs for each story yeah um largely donated by those photographers um depicting you know some so again hopefully some sites and images of Canberra that aren't stereotypical so that was really cool yeah well I noticed actually there's a photo in there because your wife has done some of the photography she does some of the photography as well yes there's a photo in there of you looking particularly hipster I'm trying trying to at, look and it looks like it was down at new acting it maybe? is yes yeah. smoking and green gout yes yep. um and my my um with your fixie bike my fixie bike which is <laughs> just now much more beaten up than it is in that photograph <laughs> There were some genuine hipsters in that photo. I'm not. I'm not a genuine. <laughs> You're not hipster. A genuine we managed hipster? to find some genuine hipsters. Oh, okay. yes. They weren't harmed in the making of that <laughs> photograph. I promise. Uh, so just just talking to people now about whether that's a nice format or whether we go for something more like the bed, you know, the bedside book, more more yeah. of your, your novel type format. Yeah. Just yeah. just text. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe there'll be another version of it soon. And, a different format. Brilliant. So I guess, well, considering your book is in hot demand and may no longer be on shelves for much longer, I'm feeling very lucky now I've got a copy. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a few, there's, yeah, there's a few more, <laughs> few more floating around. Um, but, you know, if people want to hear about your stories, they can listen to them on your yep, podcast, which certainly. is also called Capital Young. Yes. So how did the idea to turn your stories into audio format come about? So I'd always been interested in audio. I did some university radio many years ago now Harry did you many, many years ago but you're not I, an authentic hipster I, no no, right, no. well okay. <laughs> I, when I was at university we didn't have hipsters we well, I think hippies you, have been so invented. you were a hipster before it was, was, was we didn't even have hippies I went to university a very long very long time ago oh not that long ago <laughs> when, when I was putting my um, fountain pen back in my inkwell <laughs> at university I thought, I thought radio radio looked like a bit of fun so I'd always been interested in radio um, and, I'd, and I'd play with it. we were talking earlier about you know the various software you use and, and back then Audacity was the only software you could use I know I know well hopefully the this dark podcast ages. will sound a bit more slick because I've got a new program something a new toy to try out yeah we'll see how it goes <laughs> uh, and so I was always keen to get back to it and as, a, as I think I said earlier um, 
people don't want to always spend large amounts of time staring at computer screens to read stories and so podcasts are, I think are probably a more accessible way of storytelling yeah uh, you can you can have it on in the car you can be at the gym you can be you know doing something else yeah um, cooking cooking yeah and still I, listening to the podcast yeah there's this podcast I've been listening to actually called arranged marriage with a modern Indian man and it's oh, cool. it is so good it's about this guy who agrees to let his parents put him on arranged marriage dating websites but he it keeps his real name and stuff all anonymous and um, he chats with his sister and his best friend like, every week or two about how the dates are going and how the matchmaking is going because but no one knows that he he is that person I think he I think if he gets to know a particular girl well he'll tell them he's doing a podcast but his parents have no idea so it's all it, yeah it feels like a, a like a, a real doco version of master and none or something so how gory yeah. does he get with his with his details well he doesn't really I mean because so much of it takes place like on these online dating platforms and their parents are involved wow. there's not really gory details but it's all like super intense politics about you know because he's from an Indian family and his parents and they have cast specific dating wow. websites it's amazing wow. anyway I won't talk too much about that but I really like to listen to that one while I'm cooking cool <laughs> yeah do they talk about food on the podcast at all is yeah, that a feature sometimes. yeah yeah like it's, and they talk a lot about Indian culture because all three of the um, presenters are from Indian backgrounds, but they um, live in different countries, I think. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so that's an example. Yeah, you can, yeah. you can listen to a podcast no matter what you're doing um, and no matter what sort of podcast you're listening to. So so it just um, seemed like a nice fit to be doing that. And um, Peter Hewiston, a good friend of mine, had a bit of a background in radio and a good voice for, mm. for reading and... and Often bring something else in the reading of the of the story that I can't offer. Um, yeah. And I've got a nice enough family. Um, my wife is not only willing to take photographs, but sometimes provides some voice talent as well. And the kids have made some appearances. So um, it's just a, another nice creative outlet and a different way of bringing the stories to life. Yeah. And do you change the stories much when you're performing them? So, sometimes. Um, so and you know it, it, it can be as subtle as you don't need to. Um, do all the he said, she said, um, yeah, yeah. because the, the the different voices provide that context, and so yes. you can you can shorten them and, and simplify them sometimes. Uh, I was on a I was on a um, panel for a um, digital writers festival a couple of years back with a couple of people talking about um, writing for the ear. The segment was called and was talking about how you think about your podcast. And I must admit, I probably after that thought more about how to tailor things because I was amazed there were some real professionals on that panel and they were producing stuff for radio and podcast, but they were editing their, their audio work quite a big bit between the two formats, just between radio and podcasting because the, the, even then the, there can be different sort of limitations and different audiences and, and you're, you're pitching things slightly differently. Well, so I went to a podcast conference in Sydney a couple of weeks ago and um, there was a speaker, uh, the second the second panel I went to, and she was saying, because um, she does radio stuff and podcasts, and she was saying the biggest difference with radio and podcasting is with radio, you're trying to get people not to turn it off. Turn it off, yes. And podcasting, you're trying to get people to turn it on. Yes, and yes. And so you, you have to, like, 
it's it's quite a different. The psychology is isn't it interesting, yeah. yeah. The psychology is, and and when it, it sort of makes sense when you think about it. Once you turn a podcast on, once you've once you've pressed play on your phone or whatever device you're on, you do tend to stick with stick it. Stick with it, yeah. Yeah, but you're right. When you're in the car on the radio, the temptation to switch channels is much greater. You know, yeah, so you know, yeah. Or just turn, down turn it off, or, or or put a podcast on your phone. Yeah, but, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so so after hearing that, I have tried to tailor them more. But off, and often it can also come down to, to voice talent and also how much work I think I might need to do in beloved audacity afterwards around sound effects and what's available and um, what's going to add to the story without getting too carried away and get to the point where you just sort of drown it out in sound effects and music. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Yeah, though I do enjoy your sound effects. I really, the um, Anzac Day one I thought was done really well like with the footsteps and stuff like that um, and then Peter I think that's a good example of, of his narration sort of oh yeah his narration was excellent a nice gravitas to it you know I can't I can't do so yeah I'll give it 20 years so 20 years yeah, yeah. <laughs> did, did I mention how long ago I went to university <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh so yeah so I mean one of the things I like about the Capital Young's podcast is you know obviously it's a fictional podcast and that's kind of a bit of a niche there aren't that many around you know there's a lot of true crime ones around um, i'm a big consumer of true crime podcasts. me too i love oh, the true so crime good. Yes. you've been listening to trace no how have you not been trace. listening? To trace? oh my god okay. trace trace is this one that is so in the 1970s this woman got murdered in her own bookshop right and cold case never solved and this um abc journalist uh with the assistance of the woman's two sons, has been doing this investigative wow. journalism to try and figure out who murdered this woman. And it's just been really... So it's like the new serial, yeah? I, it's better than serial. Oh, better than serial. Better okay. than serial, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Have you seen... Have you seen Netflix seems to be trying to make as many films as they can um, of the same genre. Have you seen Evil Genius? No. Is so that good? Evil Genius is, is another... They've got real footage in it and you know, a bit of a warning for people that might want to check it out. It's quite confronting of a, of a guy that walks into a bank with a bomb strapped to his chest oh my God. and says he's been kidnapped and told that if he doesn't rob the bank, then the bomb will explode. True, true life story and that footage of it. And then, they, and then it's, it, it all unravels from there as to how he finds himself in the bank. Oh my god! Oh. They, they are they are becoming very popular, but yeah. they are compelling though. Once you oh, get so compelling, yeah. but fictional ones obviously not that yes. common. I mean, the two that I know, Welcome to Night Vale, yep, yep. which is excellent, and um, this other one which I haven't gotten as much into, which is um, Welcome to the Mag- Magic Tavern. Oh, I haven't, I haven't heard that one. No, oh, so this one's sort of about this guy who gets tra- he's at like a Hungry Jacks or something, and he gets transported through a wormhole to this medieval fantasy land. Um, and he's got as, like a tiny, yeah, and, and he's got his phone and a tiny bit of Wi-Fi signal. So he starts making a podcast show about all the weird people who are at this magic cabin. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> and he interviews different people every time. It's really quirky. And, but... and probably what they've got going, which I think probably, I imagine people struggle a bit with my stuff and maybe it's why there isn't more of it, is that I think probably serialising a fictional story yeah, that works quite well because yeah. you, you sort of know what you're getting. And I, I think probably one of the, problems with my podcast is sometimes it's going to be a kid more of a kid's theme like most more adult someone's going to have explicit yeah. language sometimes it's not someone's going to be dark like you said someone's going to be light um you, uh, you know that's a bit of a problem in in podcasting short stories yeah. is that the listener doesn't always know what they're in for and i, I try to 
communicate that if I can when I put it out, but that's not always going to be obvious. So I think it might be... Do them as, you know, have a... Or your adult ones yes. in a particular playlist. Yes. And kids yes. And, and, and maybe label them really clearly that way. Well, yeah. the science is ones that are sort of in the middle where, and I think I call them family friendly or something, where they're not particularly aimed at children, but they're yeah. not full of F bombs either. So, you know. <laughs> not everyone, that all of your not, stories not are. Not all of But sometimes it's an F bomb. Uh, and so, yeah, maybe everyone can get a, get a look at it. But maybe that's why one, there's not more storytelling podcasts. I wonder, because really, unless yeah. you're serialising something very long, then inevitably, for the, like we said earlier, like for the short stories to be interesting, they've got to be different. But then you end up with this catch-22 situation where as a result, people don't always know what they're going to get when they switch yeah, the podcast on. Yeah. I think as well, storytelling in the podcast world is interesting. When you look at what what gets sort of characterised as storytelling, a storytelling podcast, often it is the true crime stuff or it's... Uh, um, even like this American Life sometimes is described as storytelling, and, yeah, it, and it is to some story true stories. Yeah. And so it does seem like in that genre, when we say storytelling, we're not necessarily talking about fiction, and maybe yeah. maybe it needs its own sort of I don't know badge or category or something. Yeah, but I, you know, I mean, people love Welcome to Night Vale. Like, yeah. I think I think there is a niche for storytelling. Well, and and and. and um, Many years ago, the, the sort of most popular radio production was radio plays. Oh, well, exactly. Which, yeah. which, which, were, which I think is almost how yours is a little bit. That's more, sort of like that's sort of what I'm having a crack at. Yeah, more yeah. like a radio play. Um, and it, it isn't interesting that podcasts have become so massively popular. Yeah. But that sort of where it all originated from is not really there's not a lot of that around for whatever reason. Uh, look, everything old is new again. Yes, <laughs> we'll bring back the radio play. <laughs> now. You said you're still writing stories because obviously you've got quite a few more stories on your podcast that aren't actually in your original book. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, so you're obviously still taking requests for that, but are you working on anything else right now? Yes, I'm, there's a few, as you know, I've taken some leave off work. So yes, I've got I do few, know. <laughs> there's a few. There's a few uh, should we disclose our professional relationship or not? Let's not. Uh, let's not. Let's not. <laughs> so Harry knows I'm on leave from work. Enough said. Um, and so I've got a few projects underway. So the the podcast this year, um, part of the reason I took some time off was to spend more time with my two kids who are now a bit older and aren't getting the same bedtime stories they used to and aren't that delighted about it. And so they've been giving me help with the podcast. So the podcast has a, a little bit more of that family-friendly child focus and that's yep. one of the reasons why uh you're probably hearing more and more things that aren't in the book that yeah, have been written yeah. since um and so that's been a lot of fun and, and we're keeping that going um in the back of our garage with a microphone that's not nearly as impressive as if it's yours three SingStar microphones hooked into a laptop <laughs> sorry everyone for the poor audio quality uh, you keep telling me you're not a hipster <laughs> <laughs> not a very good SingStar player either uh and so the other the other thing I'm working on is something longer longer form, yeah. a, a novel, um, and it's also set in the Canberra region to sort of keep the flow going, but um, a little different, but but based on a couple of the short stories that I've written. So um, oh, I didn't realise. Yeah, that. so there's a couple of stories that I'm quite fond of and always wanted to come back to, and so there's one in the book. Uh, about I'm trying to make sure I don't give away anything from the novel because there are a few twists in there. But there's there's one in the in the book about the Birdman Rally and a competitor in the Birdman Rally in Canberra. So many years ago, when I was a wee boy, um, there was a very big celebration uh, of the Birdman Rally on the lake in Canberra on Canberra Day, 
and if the National Archives, or the, sorry, the ACT Archives are to be believed, there were 100,000 people sitting on the lake foreshore watching people dress up in silly costumes and throw themselves into the lake. It seems like a lot. Including <laughs> uh, Shane Rattenbury, MLA, oh, now, yeah. now Minister for Justice in the ACT. Uh, he was a competitor in that <laughs> event. Yes, true story. Uh, oh so everyone, everyone used to give it a go. Um, and so I had a short story in the book about an, an older guy reliving his heyday, leaping into the freezing cold Lake Billy Griffin waters. And so the novel starts the same way yeah. with, with this character um, bracing again to leap into the cold water. Um, and, it, and it goes from there about, about his reminiscing about his time at the Birdman Rally, but also growing up in Cooma during the Stone Mountain scheme as a son of Italian migrants. Very exciting. So it's sort of been inspired by one of the short stories, but it's expanding it yeah. quite a bit. So, but I think a lot of authors do that. Um, they're one of my favourite authors. Uh, she won the Hugo and Nebula Prize long time ago, back in the 1970s, for her book Dream Snake. And Dream Snake, I think you, the genre you would probably call it biopunk, which is sort of like science fiction, but kind of more based on genetic engineering of spaceships. And um, her story had been based on a short story that she had published, which also I think had won the prize. And then she'd expanded on it and just sort of developed this whole world and this whole story around it. And I think, um, I think for a lot of writers, it's quite a natural progression to short stories first and then do the. Yeah, I guess the short story does allow you to sort of try yourself out on lots of different ideas and themes and, and yeah, storytelling, and then and, and then you you feel like you might have done justice to something a little better than you have in other places, and yeah, so it's it's nice to come back to it, and yeah, expand it out a bit. Um, it's it's a nice little project too because um, it's bringing sort of together my heritage and my wife's heritage. So her grandfather was headhunted to be the chief engineer on the Stone Mountain scheme from England. And so I've been speaking to her dad a lot about what it was like to, to pick up everything in England and move to this tiny little town uh, in the middle of um, New South Wales. Yeah. Uh, and then my family were migrants from Italy around the same time. And so the main character... Um, has a similar experience of like, as many Italian migrants did coming out here after the Second World War, um, taking whatever jobs they could get, um, and and moving to Cooma and and his father working with Stone Mountain scheme. Yeah, and it's an interesting time to reflect. The reason I was sort of attracted to it is interesting time to reflect. Uh, not only with the Snowy 2.0 starting, but also sort of Australia's. I was really surprised. I've done a lot of research here at the National Library around what Australia's attitudes were to immigration, mm. particularly after the Second World War, and and some of the engineers that they approached and needed were German, for example. Um, so Italians had came here. They were our enemies during the Second World War, only yeah. you know, a handful of years before the Snowy kicked off. And so it was really interesting to read about some of the deliberations and discussions both. Um, sort of in the cabinet, around the cabinet table, but also publicly around how did Australia feel about that. Um, and really it seemed there was this overwhelming acceptance that we needed a bigger population to, to succeed as a country and, and we needed those smart migrants. And so we were sort of quite embracing in the end of this, of this migration boom. 
it feels like a very different sort of culture and time. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure not everyone agreed with that, but but um, that's the way the sort of history is written. And yeah, it feels like a very different Australia to the one we have now. Yeah, that's, that sounds brilliant. So you're doing a lot of research and writing for that at the moment. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time here at the National Library, looking at the National Archives, um, looking at the the history of the Snowy and the migration at the time, um, having a look so that the the main character, uh, partly due to these experiences that he has in Coombe, um, becomes part of the union movement um, mm. and so looking at the history of the union movement uh, here particularly public sector unions yep. um, that's what brings him to Canberra so again it's interesting to, to sort of reflect on Australia's attitudes to unions in the 60s and 70s and 80s to, compared to where we are now yeah um, and so that's another sort of theme of the book uh, and then finally uh, he's obviously a bit older and he's and he's reminiscing um, and people people have read the Birdman rally short story or know it sort of explores a little bit how our perceptions change as we grow older and and how um, it can become a little challenging to appreciate everything that is happening and so that's something the character's grappling with as well um, as he grows older just you know his, his his reality and his perceptions yeah well it sounds like a very complex thoughtful book so I'm excited we'll to see, see we'll see if I <laughs> see if I do it justice or not yeah. <laughs> well, I guess putting a lot of thought into it early is a good start yes exactly <laughs> yeah. didn't do the Stephen King model for no. this one no. Uh, no 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 here at Lost the Plot we don't endorse the Stephen King model <laughs> <laughs> it's a very very good way to lose the plot yeah exactly yes. brilliant well thank you so much Sean it's been a pleasure thank you Harry it was a lot of fun thank yeah, you thank you Cheers. That was local Canberra author Sean Costello. You can check out his short stories and podcast on his website Capital Yarns and maybe still snaffle a copy of his book of the same name while there are still copies going. So I read quite a few great books in April and May, though I am currently seven books behind in my Goodreads challenge, so I definitely need to step it up or try to read some shorter books. But I finally finished The Stone Sky, which is the last book in N.K. Jemisin's fantasy trilogy The Broken Earth, which won the Nebula, like I mentioned earlier. And it was good, but I think the first book was still the best. I appreciate the epic scale and ambition of the series, but the finale was just maybe a little too big. I absolutely adored Stella Pryor's finalist Mirandi Rewo's novella The Fish Girl. It was a retelling of a short story about four Dutchmen from the perspective of a girl who's only ever referred to as either the Malay girl, or much nastier terms. Anyway, it is a beautiful, sensuous book that brings to life an untold story. I also really want to talk about a local Canberra book called The Anchoress by Robin Cadwallader. I got to see Robin speak at the launch of her newest book, The Book of Colours, as well as at a library's ACT event. Her book is not just ambitious, it is successful. And I look, I was skeptical that you could have an engaging story about a 17-year-old girl who volunteers to be locked in a cell attached to a church for the rest of her life, but it is a captivating book. All right, readers, that's it from me. I'll be back with another episode in July on a book-themed topic with lots of book news and book reviews. So if you want to support the podcast and help to keep it on air, check out the Patreon page where you can support Lost the Plot for as little as a dollar an episode. You can also follow the Tinted Edges Facebook page to keep up to date with upcoming book events, leave a review on iTunes, or subscribe to the Tinted Edges website. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next month.